very kind. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Those of uh, you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium uh, at our facility in downtown Washington and those of you who are watching this webcast, I'm so glad that you're able to join us today for what will undoubtedly be an extremely timely book forum and event discussing <clears throat> what has obviously been in the news pretty much incessantly for the last two weeks. Uh, this whole issue of whistleblowers and the like. My name is Patrick Eddington. I'm your moderator today. Uh, just a few admin and housekeeping notes before I introduce our guest. Um, I want to make sure that everybody, to include our panelists, have your phones at least on silent uh, or off. Any other devices that you may have, whether they are smartwatches, et cetera, please make sure that they are also silenced at some level. When we get to the Q&A at the end of this event, I will ask you all to please wait to be called upon wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question. And I'll ask you to identify yourself to include affiliation uh, where applicable. I think it's fair to say that the anonymous whistleblower, and I'll continue to use that term of art throughout, uh, is just the latest in a long line of individuals who have come forward over the course of the last several decades uh, to make various and sundry allegations about government misconduct and in some cases uh, corporate or even nonprofit conduct. And of course, we can look back to Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, uh, Captain Chris Pyle, United States Army, uh, who was the first to reveal Army surveillance also in 1971, the NSA 5 uh, from the mid to late 1990s and the early uh, 2000s, Thomas Tam the Justice Department official who revealed the elite stellar wind program to the New York Times, among, among others. Of course, uh, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. And there have also been, as I indicated previously, uh, almost a countless number of corporate whistleblowers over the essentially the same period. Mark Whitaker of Archer Daniels Midland, Jeffrey Wigan, of course, in the tobacco industry and, and the movie The Whistleblower uh, starring Russell Crowe, take off of that. Uh, Karen Bolkovac, uh, who worked for DynCorp in Bosnia-Herzegovina and uncovered the sex trafficking operation. I believe that movie starred Rachel Weisz, unless I'm badly mistaken, uh, and it's a really good one. And of course, just this summer, um, we had the UK equivalent uh, in our theaters um, with uh, Kira Knightley in the lead role, talking about uh, the GCHQ scandal uh, in the United Nations and, and the United States request in the run-up to the Iraq war vote to basically get dirt uh, on the other Security Council members uh, that they could use. The title of the movie, of course, is Official Secrets after the British Official Secrets Act. And so I think for a lot of people, it just kind of raises questions when, when we hear about these folks. What, what makes whistleblowers different? Why do they elect to act when others do not? Do the pathologies in large organizations, whether in the government or the private sector or the nonprofit sector, inevitably produce whistleblowers? Is Congress serious about protecting whistleblowers? Try not to laugh, okay? <laughs> Try not to laugh. How do protections for federal whistleblowers differ from agency to agency and from the private and nonprofit sector? And are new federal insider threat programs, which were started in the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations, just a bureaucratic smokescreen for cracking down on internal dissent? Well, this afternoon, our panel is gonna help us answer these and other important questions. On the very far wing over here is, uh, is the person in the hot seat, Tom Muller, journalist and author of this book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud from Riverhead Books. And yes, he will be signing copies uh, out here in the hallway when the event is over. So if those of you who are here, please do avail yourself of that opportunity. 
Muller writes for The New Yorker and other publications. He lives in a medieval stone farmhouse surrounded by olive groves in the Ligurian countryside outside of Genoa, Italy. Yes, I am jealous. No question about it. Uh, to my immediate left is Professor Marianne Jennings of Aristotle State University and the author of Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse from St. Martin's Griffin, a seminal work on business ethics. To her left is Irvin McCullough, the National Security Analyst for the Government Accountability Project, specializing in intelligence community and military whistleblowing. He supports investigations, legislation, and litigation uh, within GAP's national security program. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, that's all great, but when are you going to talk about the whistleblower um, and President Trump? We're going to get to that. But this whole issue of whistleblowers and the scope of it, uh, the number of them that we have seen over the decades in our society. It is very much a societal phenomenon. It encompasses government, the private sector, and the nonprofit community. So before I really put Tom in the hot seat, I'd like to ask Professor Jennings and Irv McCullough, respectively, some questions to help us contextualize our discussion here. And I, and I want to start with Mary Ann. You know, you have written and lectured on corporate ethics, or the lack thereof, depending upon the circumstances, um, for decades now, and, and your book, The Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse, um, you can't Google or use DuckDuckGo or anything else without that book coming up. So uh, it's obviously had an enormous impact. Walk us through, essentially, uh, if you will, kind of what you have learned in the course of your study of this phenomenon and, and essentially kind of the basic lessons that you've drawn from it and kind of crystallize in your book and, and the rest of your work. Well, I think probably the most important thing you, you learn is that the question people ask, why do they do such bizarre things? Why, why would someone in a company or a government agency do this? And what you quickly learn is there's a whole psychology to this. And so when people do these things, they honestly believe that they are doing the right thing for a number of reasons. There's um, diagnosis bias. It'll be OK. And if I can, I'll give you a simple example I try to use with students to show that sometimes good intentions get in the way. Um, I'm from Phoenix. And by the way, it's cooler there than it is here today, just so you know. Um, I, and we had freezing temperatures two Christmases ago. And, and we can't handle it. We don't know how to deal with it. And our tires don't know how to deal with it either. And I was leaving on a trip. And um, I served on a nonprofit at that time. And we had forgotten to sign something for the IRS, where we all had to have a quorum present and sign it in person. And they called and said, could you come and do this? And I said, sure, but I have a flight at 5.30 AM. Great. And so when I left my house that morning, freezing temperatures, as I was leaving the neighborhood, the, the right rear tire light came on. And it said, inflation low, check the tire. And I'm thinking, it's just the weather. This was my diagnosis. And I kept driving, but it, it started flashing. And it continued to flash. It was getting annoying. If I'd had some duct tape, I would have covered it up. <laughs> but I kept going because my responsibility, it was a good cause. It was to that nonprofit and those people. And whatever risk I was taking, I was doing on behalf of them. And I got to the meeting. and. Um, I called my husband, and I explained what happened. He said, well, it's probably just the weather. That was his diagnosis as well. And he said, I'll swing by on my way to the office. When I finished the meeting, I walked out, and the administrative assistant handed me the keys to my husband's car and said, your husband said something's wrong with yours. I called him, and he said it was a commercial razor. 
in the side of the tire, kind of thing you can't even fix. You have to get a whole new tire. And I often say to people, how dumb was that for me to continue driving that car? Go ahead, you can think it, I can take it. Really <laughs> dumb. It was really dumb, but in the pressure of that moment, you don't see the issues. Human beings respond to the pressure that is in front of them, not the pressures that will come somewhere down the line. And so if you are beholden to the cause, you do make these kinds of decisions. And another thing that I think happens that you have to really take a hard look at is nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'll destroy this data. Nobody wakes up one day and says, fraud, that's the way to get the accounting straightened out. Nobody does that. What you have are a series of seemingly inconsequential decisions, and particularly this kind of thing that happens. Um, I have um, white-collar criminals who have done time come and speak to my students for two reasons. One is I want them to see that they're normal human beings, not the kind of thing you'd pick out of a crowd and say, well, that's a white-collar criminal going right there. And the second reason is they all have a story of their initial trap. And by that, I mean they'll be sitting in a meeting, and the CEO will say something like, OK, well, that's not really an issue, or I've looked at that already, and they haven't. And they know it's an issue, and they've talked about it. But every single person in that room who knows that says nothing. From that point on, they become prisoners of each other. And it seems like the smallest of things, it's not the kind of thing that's going to be splashed on the newspaper, but it is the start. It is the adjustment of the depreciation when they know they're going down a path. And nobody says anything. From that moment on, they are prisoners. They know something about the CEO. Likewise, the CEO knows of their unwillingness to stop them. And so you have that combination, and all of them will say, it just keeps growing, because they push the envelope to see how far they can get you to go along with it. And there's still another thing that I think is really important. Um, I call it the iconic CEO in my book. And I've since come to label it after a 1993 piece in the Journal of Business Ethics called the Bathsheba Syndrome, as in David and Bathsheba. My students have no idea who that is. And you, know, you have to explain. Of course, they don't know who Paul McCartney is either. So there's a whole line of distinguished people. And the Bathsheba syndrome is named after King David, but we can't call it the David syndrome. No one would recognize it. So it's not sexist. I just want to clarify that. So in that, we have a charismatic leader who probably deserved his position, humble beginnings. They rise to the top, and something happens to them. I don't know what that is, because I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist. But the things that happen to them is they begin to take on this air of almost royalty, uh, unapproachability. And nobody's calling them on something as simple as their travel expenses. I mean, you look at Jeffrey Emmold. He had not just one private jet, but two. And they ask him, why do you need two private jets every time you fly? And he said, well, the engines fail. Well, doesn't GE make engines? I mean, I don't, I don't understand why that was happening. So, and then they don't stop it. And then you have the compliance officer having to go to the board so that we get this iconic CEO up there and they have no resistance. 
And not only that, their lines become blurred on that climb up to the top. And I'll leave you with one last example, and then I'll stop because there's so many other things I could say, but I don't want to steal the whole rest of the time. I have a friend who is pretty high up in a company, and I have great respect for him. And he solicited some 360-degree feedback from his employees. It was a survey, but also open-end. And the message that came through very clearly to him was this, you're a liar. And he was stunned. And when he told me this, I was stunned because I don't know him to be a liar. And he was just shocked by this and disappointed. And, and so he went home that night and explained to his wife the feedback that came, that he, my employees think I'm a liar. And he asked her, why would they say that? And she said, well, that would be because you are a liar. <laughs> so much for marital comfort. And, um, and then he said, what do you mean? And she said, why do you think the company asks you to give so many presentations? And he said, I thought it was because I was a good presenter. And she said, no, it's because if the building's on fire, you will call it a controlled burn. <laughs> if the boat is sinking, you will say, we're taking on water. And she explained to him that ever so slightly, his standards on that bright line had shifted and he didn't even recognize it. And I find that in so many executives. The best place for information, solid information, about what's really happening in the company is the front line. They have not been affected by that climb. No one is beholden to them. And they really do have valuable information about, they know things as simple as, you can't put those goods down as being sold because they were not shipped. They know that. They know when there is accounting fraud. And that's why we have this sort of long climb up there, and then there are barriers. And so we have this almost impossible situation to deal with. And I won't get into the fixes and other issues, but does that give you a good enough summary, no, or that, do you that, want more? No, that's great. And, and we will actually come back and, and talk about okay. what can and should be fixed, if you will. Okay. Um, so that's a wonderful overview of, of the corporate and kind of nonprofit angle here. Irv, your organization has been around for over four decades, unless I'm badly mistaken. Um, Gap was started really in the wake of a lot of these scandals that came up in the 1970s. Give us a sense of what Gap is all about, who you deal with, uh, your mode of operation, et cetera. Um, absolutely. And Pat, you're absolutely right. We've been around for a little over four decades, 41 years, in fact. Uh, so just a little over four decades now. And we are the Government Accountability Project. I'm a national security analyst with the Government Accountability Project. That means most of my work involves intelligence community and military whistleblowers. But we have a number of programs inside of our organization that represent whistleblowers from the private sector as well as from the federal government. Essentially, when a whistleblower comes to us, they'll either come to us with a disclosure that they want to make, they've seen some type of wrongdoing and they want to report it to someone who can correct that wrongdoing, or they'll come to us with a retaliation complaint. They've already made that disclosure and they have been hurt because of it. At that stage, uh, we will gather the facts, we will talk to supportive witnesses, we will talk to anyone that they know that they can put us in touch with that has also seen that kind of wrongdoing, we will get, educate them and guide them through 
the very treacherous waters, the minefield that is, the federal whistleblower protection statutes, and help them make their protected disclosure in any way that we see best beats their interest and best helps them achieve their goals. Uh, on the retaliation cases, we'll do the exact same thing in that we'll go through exactly how they made their disclosure, see whether or not they qualify for certain types of legal protections under the federal whistleblower statutes and regulations, and then we'll try to challenge the retaliation. We'll work with Congress, we'll work, we'll work with the media, we'll even work with Pat over here every once in a while to make sure that whistleblowers can be protected from whistleblower retaliation in all, at all costs. And so <clears throat> we come now to uh, our author, uh, Tom Muller. I mean, I have to ask this off the top. I mean, this is your second book, right? So your first book was called Extra Virginity, which is about the entire world of olive oil, the whole industrial aspect of it, how it goes from olives to your cabinet. How do you go, and by the way, it's a great book. I am actually using it to kind of figure out, okay, who can I really like trust here to buy from? How did you go from olive oil to whistleblowers? I guess the common denominator is fraud. Um, I really was focused on how um, tanker loads of seed oil crossing the Mediterranean could magically become extra virgin olive oil by the time they reached Italy. Um, and the widespread fraud in the food system, not just in olive oil, that I began to see. Uh, people buying low and selling high and obfuscating the passages uh, and, and middlemen. Um, creating products that, that simply were not what they said on the label. Um, but um, I think that more than anything else, more than any other single thing, um, why I tackled whistleblowing is because of the characters of the whistleblowers, the characters of, the, uh, of their advocates, um, and a number of other people, um, everyone on this dais included, who um, at one point or another has been a guide to me. Uh, but the, 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 the olive oil story was a story about people. Uh, good guys, bad guys, mafia people, uh, and truly saintly individuals. Whistleblowing is like that too, and I, I really followed my instincts, my nose, my good luck, in, and found a remarkable cast of characters, a remarkable cast of characters in a wide range of different industries and, and walks of life, um, whose stories I think capture something important about the, the, the place where we are right now in our society. And, and again and again, uh, whistleblowers said to me, uh, I hate this word whistleblower. I was just doing my job. And I think that almost Orwellian shift that we're going to call a truth teller and a person of conscience a special thing, as if all of us can't aspire to that, that grabbed me in a way that, that, uh, that Held me long enough to write a book over seven years. And, and what about the entomology of this term, whistleblower? I mean, because you go into that in some detail here uh -huh. in the book, talking about the origins of it. Walk us through that. Well, you know, it's one of those uh, chicken or egg questions, because quite often it's not clear exactly um, how, this, uh, how this term came together. In Elizabethan times, both whistle and blow could be used in a jarg, in a slang way for... Um, revealing information on the sly, quite often, to do harm to someone. Um, then there's the British uh, Bobby, uh, you know, blowing the whistle when they see a, a thief running away. Then there is the 
the alternate theory of the, um, the umpire on the, on the field that blows a whistle when there's a foul. No one actually knows for sure, and it's probably all of the above, right? It's a sort of a, a, a constellation of meanings. Um, there are other countries where the term is bell ringer or lighthouse keeper, or, and I think there too, the whistleblower may not be the ideal um, way to capture the, the, the act of conscience, the telling of truth, uh, but we're stuck with it because it's, it's so deeply embedded in the law now that in order to survive, you really need to cho choose and consciously say, I am a whistleblower and this statute protects me. So let's get down to some cases. Alan Jones. Tell us about Alan Jones and Big Pharma. Alan Jones. Uh, when we were talking about people um, whom it's a pleasure to know and an inspiration uh, to spend time with, I spent better part of 10 days with him in his hunting cabin out in the Pennsylvania woods learning about Alan Jones's story. Uh, the first three days were fairly quiet, and then I think he sa saw that he could trust me. Uh, and I think gaining trust is one of the critical things in, in getting people to tell their stories fully. Uh, they have the canned for, you know, for the nightly news story, but actually explaining why they did what they did. Alan Jones was an investigator in the Pennsylvania State um, Office of the Inspector General. He happened to find that the state, the Pennsylvania State pharmacist, received a $2,000 check in an account that was not registered, uh, to, not officially registered, no official um, owner of that account. That's a felony offense in Pennsylvania. Um, and the, the check was signed by Janssen, the, um, the, the um, subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. And he started looking at what it was that Janssen and Johnson and Johnson and others, Pfizer and Pfizer and Novartis and others, were doing, paying money to this man. Gradually, he's, he's a, he was a great investigator, um, a truly impressive investigator. Um, and uh, he he uh, he gradually started putting the pieces together and seeing the bigger picture, uh, what's going on here. And what was going on was that um, these pharma companies were, were systematically corrupting the state health officials to make sure that their highly toxic, <laughs> extremely powerful second generation antipsychotic medicine was the medicine of choice for a wide range. It's, 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 this, 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 uh, this drug is called Risperdal and it's infamous at this point. Um, a wide range of, of conditions for which it was never cleared by the FDA. They had started in Texas with something called TMAP, the, the medication protocol for Texas, and they had cloned that in 20 other states. And Pennsylvania was the last of these states. Billions of dollars of overspending for drugs that ultimately turned out to be either um, ineffective or extremely harmful. Uh, some of the side effects don't bear thinking about. Um, and have caused immense harm. Ultimately, there was a settlement, a series of settlements, uh, thanks to Alan Jones, um, putting together a couple banker boxes full, full of information, and then um, trying to convince people that he had a story. Now, the, the, the plot thickens when he finds out, not only do the pharmaceutical companies resist his attempts to out this information, his own inspector general clamps down on him. So we have private and public forces attempting to muzzle this story. 
And, and so to be clear, within this inspector general office in the state of Pennsylvania, this office that is supposed to be part of the regulatory schema, was this something that the head of the office did on their own initiative or was there outside political pressure that was being brought to bear to influence this outcome? It seemed very clear that Governor Tom Ridge, who was the governor at the time, had made clear that um, he very pro-business, very um, anti-fraud investigation. He started under his watch, um, active files were being destroyed. Anything that was closed was being covered up. So was there an actual link, direct link, to Ridge that was ever proven in any of this? And, and, I, and I ask that because <clears throat> in, in the kind of work that I do, um, and, and when I did my whistleblowing thing, I was obsessed with documents, always obsessed with documents, because with documents, it's a lot harder for people to say, well, it's hearsay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which, which is one of the issues that the anonymous whistleblower, to a certain degree, is having to try to overcome here. So was there any smoking gun, so to speak, with respect to Ridge, or was this handled in ways where there was not a paper trail, apparently? There was not a paper trail, um, per se. Uh, the circumstantial evidence was very strong. He arrives, lawyers start um, being controlling every meeting, and files start getting shredded. So it was a fairly clear set of, of circumstances. But there was no direct, um, no direct link to, to, to Tom Ridge. And Tom Ridge may not even have known about this particular case. It was a policy to, as the SEC has had problems, destroying old case files, which is a terrible waste of investigative work, but good if you don't want people connecting the dots, right? So Alan Jones had to fight off his own office, which retaliated against him, uh, threatened him, fired him eventually. And then he had to find someone to take this case uh, that he knew was extremely important. He, uh, he is someone, he, one of the characteristics of whistleblowers that I see again and again and again is an ability to empathize with the ultimate victims of the scheme. They look through the spreadsheets, they look through the pep talks and, and, and the bonus payments, and they say, this drug that we're making, or that I'm allowing to be sold, this is hurting people. This is, this is causing harm. And the next statement I often hear is, what if that was your mother that was taking that drug? What if that was your brother? These very strong, empathetic statements that make, that, that somehow the whistleblowers pierce the veil of, of corporate or, or government, you know, um, boilerplate and said, oh no, actually, someone's getting really badly hurt here. So he, on his own recognizance, with no job, living in this cabin, which I, which I stayed in, uh, and with no money, um, shopped around to the different attorneys general in the states where this scheme was being perpetrated. He finally found someone to listen in Texas. And this wonderful, wonderful woman, um, who was part of the, uh, an attorney in the attorney general's office, um, who, who finally heard him. And, and he remembers that moment as this is a moment of, of bliss uh, where, uh, and she remembers it with a certain amount of, of amusement. She said, you know, and she has this wonderful Texas accent, you know, uh, Cynthia O'Keefe is her name. Um, this guy comes down from Pennsylvania 
And, and he looks like Walker, Texas Ranger, which was a popular uh, Chuck Norris. And he, he actually very handsome guy, very, you know. Uh, and and he, he's sitting here telling me, he's Walker, Texas Ranger, he's telling me what's going on down here in Texas. And she said, I thought it was impossible. The level of wrongdoing that he was talking about seemed impossible. She, however, felt it was her duty to start investigating. She started investigating. They gathered 200 bankers' boxes of data from the, from the company. 200. And sure enough, 200 bankers' boxes. How many? How many millions of pages. Wow. Millions of pages. Teams from the DOJ and from her office spent an entire year and a half going over this stuff. And sure enough, Alan Jones was right. And she said it's a tribute to his ability as an investigator that the, the fraud scheme that he identified with a handful of documents um, w proved in every detail that he described to them to be correct. So I want to pause the discussion and, and go back to Marianne. What were the people at Janssen thinking when they were writing these checks to this, to this, <laughs> to this pharmacist in Pennsylvania? I mean... Um, the, the psychological tools, everybody does it. This is the way it's always been done. If we don't do this, this is what happens to the company. They go through this whole sort of mantra of things that just builds over time. And it, it started with one check and then it just continues to grow. And they have that immunity where they think they've done so well. I mean, we still continue to give Johnson & Johnson immunity. Yeah. You know, they, for, the, for recalling the Tylenol yeah. during the pre-tamper-proof days, I, it drives me crazy when I see that story again and again where people say, this was true corporate social responsibility. And I know of at least four other instances where they did far more harm yeah. and they didn't do it. So I think it's the same thing that I talked about. You have people who are aware of it, but they just, it's part of the system. Yeah. It's part of the way we do things. And I, I call it the sandbox. I think you have a big one in Washington, DC, but <laughs> it, it's the sandbox is like children. When you're in the sandbox, there are certain rules that you play by. And parents will look at that sandbox and say, all right, none of that. We can't have you tossing, turtling, hurling. Well, it's the rules of the sandbox. And these people operate under this. And when someone comes in or someone within says, wait a minute, why are you doing this? I'm dating myself terribly, but it's like Serpico. Yeah. When, when yeah. he came in, he was yeah. the clean cop. He said, what are you doing here? Yeah. Selling evidence, taking bribes, what are you doing? And they looked at him and said, we're not the problem. Yeah. You are, because they've progressed in this world. They've been rewarded. They are recognized. Nobody's saying to them, oh, we should really take a look at this. And the people who do, as I often say to companies, how do you treat the people who throw down the flag? You know, in other words, not a whistleblower, but they're saying, okay, I'm a little bit worried about this because of how do you respond to them? And then my next question is, when was the last time you promoted someone who did throw down the flag because mm. those are the signals to people who you hire, who you fire, who you discipline, who you promote establishes the culture. Okay, then I have to ask, how many in, in your career, how many examples have you found where the person throwing the flag or the yellow card to use a soccer term or whatever is actually rewarded, upheld, validated? One. 
I, I found one, and, and, and it was Sendant. And they, well, they were just idiots. I mean, they, they, they just decided to merge with a company that was nothing but a gigantic fraud. And one of their people in accounting found out about it, and he went to their CEO and said, this is what they've done. And he had to go out there publicly and say, because it was a huge merger yeah. at the time. Yeah. And he had to go out there and say, you know, this is what's going on and we're going to fix it. And then he, he, of course, got a better position because they had to get the crooks out of there. So, you know, that, that all worked out for him. But they promoted the man who had done that to a very high-level position in Sendant. So that's the one story I know about. Interesting. Where he sent the signal. And I think Alan Mullaly at Ford may be another one. It's uh -huh. not as close. When he first went to Ford, there were two things that bothered him. One was that all the executives were driving Lexus, Lexus I, <laughs> in the parking lots. And so he went in and said, all right, we're going to cut that out. We're driving Fords. And the next thing he thought was, nobody's telling me negative stuff. Mm. In one of his first meetings with them, he said, OK, I need to know what bothers you, what keeps you up at night. Tell me your problems. Silence. And he said, no one gets out of here until I hear yeah. something. So finally, one did. And after the meeting, he promoted him to send it through the culture that we, so he wasn't really a whistleblower, but it's close enough. Yeah. You'll have to take it. it. Yeah, no, no, that, that is close enough. Tom, you're gonna. <laughs> well, it reminds me of, you know, asking, as I've asked many, many times, um, how do you deal with whistleblowers? You know, how do you think whistleblowers should be dealt with? And people say, people in various organizations say, well, of course, they're a very important source of information on the front lines, and you need to pay attention and capture their information and then deal with that and work on that. And then I say, so how do you, you deal with whistleblowers in your organization? And there's a kind of a beat and a blink, and they look at me and they say, we don't have whistleblowers in our organization. <laughs> they may be some jerks, but they're no whistleblowers. You know, it's truly a disconnect. Yeah. Like whistleblowers are out there, but n no one sitting next to me in my organization uh, is a whistleblower. And if they go against us, well, they're just disgruntled. They're just, you know, they can't see that it's a universal problem that uh, if they're very close to home, all of a sudden they're threatening and they may not be the whistleblower in your ideal whistleblower in your mind. When, and that kind of brings us back, I think, to, to Alan Jones. I mean, so we, we pause the story where he gets that moment of validation when officials in Texas say, oh my God, he's right. Where does it go from there for Alan Jones? Well, it goes to trial, um, very intense trial, <laughs> lots of very good expert witnesses um, to whom I am eternally grateful because there's a great deal of data on this case because of that trial. Um, and after three days, Johnson Johnson threw in the towel and settled it for $158 million in change. Um, you know, a large payment to Alan, to the state of Texas, to Alan and his legal team, how many dollars went to the actual sufferers here? How many dollars went to the people in the reform schools, hospitals, um, various other structures of the state of Texas and everywhere else that were given these horribly dangerous drugs? Um, none, zero. And so uh, that was a real eye-opener for me, also for Alan Jones, about the nature of justice in a corporate environment with the um, accepted outcome being a legal settlement. A legal settlement with an exchange of money 
uh, signing of documents that allow both sides to say we're innocent or we're right, um, and a sealing of certain documents, um, which is extremely problematic. That it was a very good outcome from him in terms of setting a precedent and then allowing then the national settlement to go ahead. And again, at the end of the day, thanks to Allen and thanks to several other whistleblowers, um, Johnson Johnson coughed up $2.2 billion for a national settlement. How much money did they make in Risperdal during the course of this wrongdoing? $25 billion, roughly speaking. Sounds like the cost of doing business to me. So we have a major problem. And that was a success story. Yeah. That's a win. Yeah. We, I think we have a major problem in terms of what we're allowing um, to, be, to, 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 to be signed away in this legal settlements. I, I don't want the, the healthcare slice of this to necessarily dominate, but you have another example in the book that essentially involves a nonprofit hospital uh, in, in Daytona Beach, if I recall, this is Halifax Hospital. And the person in question who found an issue um, is an individual by the name of Ellen Backlid Kuntz. Did That's I get correct. that right? We can ask her uh, for the proper pronunciation. She's sitting right there. Okay. Is that good? <laughs> All right. Maybe we should get you a chair. Um, so shall I let him tell your story? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, Ellen is someone who, uh, she came to America um, and did the American dream. She worked incredibly hard, worked three jobs uh, to, to earn her way. Um, she joined Halifax Health as, um, with great delight. She was super proud of that hospital, of the work she was doing. She made her way rapidly up the, uh, the ladder, um, promotion after promotion. Um, and she ended up in, well, she did finance for a while, and then she ended up in compliance. And compliance um, requires you to look, obviously, at concerns being raised throughout an organization of any kind and evaluate them to, to what extent do these, are these credible, are these, are these actionable. And at that point, she began to realize that uh, there was a major problem, um, a major disconnect between the hospital's rhetoric uh, nonprofit were the support system hospital for Daytona were, were really good actors and the wrongdoing that she was noticing which is um, unnecessary surgeries overbilling unnecessary admissions which at a certain point in her lawsuit uh, amounted to something on the order of a billion dollars it was toned down to smaller smaller amounts as as the as the, as the case was bifurcated but at the end of the day, she did not want to blow the whistle. She did everything she could not to blow the whistle. She believed wholeheartedly in her, um, in her organization, and, and she was convinced that if she could just find a way of expressing the problems that she was seeing to the right people in the right way, um, they'd say, oh, you're right. We need to fix this. That moment never came, unfortunately. Uh, that moment never came. And at a certain point, she realized, I may be legally liable for this misconduct myself. I'm a compliance officer. I'm signing things that say you may go to jail if you don't. At a certain point, she, her hand was forced. And let me, let me pause. Marianne, accurate statement. Was, was, was she on the line if she had gone along yes, with? Yes, and um, you see, this is, this is what you find in these circumstances. And, and I think you have to really explore the psychology 
of whistleblowers. And in my field, we call them the cranks. There, there, are three types, there are three types of whistleblowers. There are the ones like Ellen, where there is, um, I think they fancy themselves, and they are, accountable to something more than just keeping this job, than just they feel that they're accountable. With her, I, I read in the book that I think it was her, her upbringing and the sense of loyalty she felt to their values. So you have that. There are other people who just look at it and say, this just isn't right, and I can't live with that. So those are the true whistleblowers. You also have whistleblowers who do it for a living. Um, that's, that doesn't come out in, in Tom's book, but in the nuclear industry, there are people who are known around the country traveling plant to plant, and they raise issues, and they end up with a settlement. They're multimillionaires. And as a utility regulator for one year in Arizona, that's all I could take. I was an interim appointee. Um, we, uh, the Palo Verde plant <coughs> was just coming online, and we had protests every day um, because there were whistleblowers. And they said there are, they are burying tools at the site because it's a cost-plus contract. We knew it wasn't a cost-plus contract, but we, we went with it anyway. And I told the company, I don't care how much you argue, and I don't care about cost-plus. Let's just do a dig, and we'll see, because otherwise it's never going away, and you can't build this plant with this kind of a... And so they paid. I think it was three hundred grand, and I told the whistleblowers, you have to go and show them where to dig. And I think it was supposed to take a week, and I think they spent two weeks digging, and they never found a single tool. Hmm. Um, and then immediately they went to the newspapers and said they dug in the wrong places. So all of us, it was just an exasperation. They are professional whistleblowers. It's not, they're just there. And it's real. I, I feel like saying what Milton Friedman said, where are these angels? that you know, everyone talks about. They're not all angels. <laughs> and then there's a third category, and they call them the cranks. And I think these folks see things, and they're sort of like cowboys that ride into a town, and they're shooting off their guns in the air, and they're pretty harmless. But once in a while, they hit something, so you got to listen to them, you know, no matter what. But they have this really high sense of responsibility, and so... I think they cost the credibility of the sincere ones. Those mm. two groups cost the credibility. But I, I think her, Ellen's experience is exactly the same. Um, and I think she hit a sandbox. I mean, this organization was bizarre. Tom didn't talk about it, but they had, they had the CEO as some kind of a god, and they had the associate general counsel offering altars to him as a dance that was done. I mean, you see, that would have been it for me. I was, <laughs> never mind the ethics of this. Human dignity is on the line. Yeah, this yeah, is, this right. is just I'm odd. So, yeah. you know, she, but at the same time, she knew what was happening to the patients. So she stayed and she did what we tell our students to do. When you are in this organization, ask if you can be an agent of change because your first duty is to help them understand. And so as Tom described it, Ellen did that. She worked her way through trying every which way to explain you can't behave like this. These are the risks. These are the costs. And then I call it the hill you die on. Yeah. There is a time when you have to face that you cannot change this organization. It can only be changed from the outside. And then I'm not even sure about that because Johnson & Johnson did not learn lessons and went on and did other things. And that's true with many companies. So that for your own sanity and for your own dedication to personal values, you leave. You don't care anymore. Yeah. 
but I ask them to at least honor this organization. You know, they're torn. You feel some loyalty to yeah. them, mm -hmm. and they had done good work. And so she went through that process, but she was in that small, limited group that are willing to say, if this is the hill I die on, so be it, even with kids and mortgages and everything else on the line. But it has to be almost a dedication to a higher order. I think there are some people, I think with, with Richard Bowen and, and Citigroup, it was his faith, where he, I don't care, and he never got anything yeah. out of it, except he has a new life now, and I think he's very happy. His dedication was, I can't be this dishonest. Yeah. I've been taught differently. Yeah. Raise I heard countless, countless times is, I have to look myself in the mirror every morning. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that is a very powerful thing. And clearly, they spend a lot of time getting to that point where they say, I don't have a choice. The choice has already been made. So Ellen reaches that point and... And fortunately, connects with a very good lawyer, who also, <laughs> also happens to be a, a, a marvelous uh, Deep South raconteur from, from uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And, and a, uh, an extremely good lawyer, also an extremely good listener. And one of the things that he says uh, early on, and I think, I think uh, Ellen would validate this too, is that she spent so much time talking to a brick wall, you know, having people say, I can't hear you, what you're saying. And she's trying to convince them that these are they're a major problem. She knows that you begin to doubt your own sanity almost. You begin to think, am I imagining all of this? Because everyone else seems to think it's okay. Finally, she found Marlon Wilbanks, who listened and listened and listened. And he said, it was a river. I can't do his accent, but uh, it was a river of words. And, and it just kept coming. And, uh, and you know, he, uh, he was extremely experienced in this sort of situation. He advised her to resign and get another job. She, she thought the best of her coworkers and, and assured him, no, no. They're going to be fine. I mean, they'll understand that I've done this for the right reasons. That didn't quite work either. Uh, you know, but, but Marlon and, and Susan Gwynluck, Marlon's partner, and Ellen made a wonderful team. And I think the support also from Russ, her husband, and her kids, the support, it's fine to have good facts. It's fine to have even good laws. If you don't have the stamina and if you don't have the support group to keep you on your feet, um, They'll wear you away, and you'll fall before you get to the finish line. And well, frankly, that's part of the playbook. Well, speaking of, of wearing away, I, I, I want to turn quickly to uh, what I've termed the wartime whistleblower. Hmm. Who is Franz Geil, and what scandal did he uncover? Franz Geil is another inspiration. Um, he, he was a civilian um, advisor to the Marine Corps. He had been in the Marine Corps, active duty, and he was a civilian advisor and was called... Um, to, to, to Iraq to fix problems that the leadership were finding in the field that were not being dealt with at the Quantico um, logistics base. Better known as the Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Thank you. Um, and one of the big problems, many problems that they discovered, one of the big problems that was not being delivered was a... a a, a vehicle, armored vehicle, that was strong enough to withstand these um, explosive device, IED devices, that were causing havoc with the lightly armored Humvees. And this is a known problem. 
I mean, when he arrived at the camp, there was a junkyard with blown up Humvees. Hundreds of people were dying. And it was widely known and had been known for quite some time. People had been filing urgent uh, requests for a better product. And that better product was already out there, uh, the MRAP, which was uh, a, a highly armored, carefully designed to, uh, against um, landmines and other um, explosive devices. The problem was that if you send the MRAP, which is already on the shelf, you undercut these big um, defense contractor uh, projects for building new armored vehicles. And those new armored vehicles are good money, a lot of money. And so you're threatening this money flow into other products if you send the MRAPs. This is the logjam that Transkyle, with an enormous amount of guts and imagination and a little bit of Lao Tzu and Clausewitz, um, was able to break and able to get the word out that people are dying, we have a solution, the solution is being willfully ignored, now we fix it. And this is the moment he made enemies. Yes. And at the same time, needless to say, his life became rather more complicated. <laughs> um, rather more complicated. The reason Franz Geil can't join us today is because, uh, he, actually, he, his story, after long travail and very painful moments, has a great happy ending, thanks to Irv and to the Government Accountability Project, that have been able to negotiate um, and to explain, to be um, intermediators between the Marine Corps and, and various other um, offices and fronts and say, look, this was for the good of the Corps. This was done for the good of the Corps. It saved many lives. And he is now employed again. He perhaps doesn't have quite the, um, the clearances that he once had. He is now gainfully employed again and doing really good work, and he's a happy man. This is a real exception that proves the rule. And it's a real success story for Gap. Um, and, for, and for his other allies, Pogo, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. But he can't be here today because it would be problematic for him. Um, you know, we didn't even want to put him in that situation. So, you know, um, that's a success story. The, the killing or the unnecessary dying stopped. Um, and, and France is, is gainfully employed again. So this is an example of Gap casework. It absolutely is. For, for lack of a better phrase, right? It is. We helped represent Franz Geil, uh, and it really is one of our biggest success stories. There actually have been a number of military whistleblowers about the IED situations, mm -hmm. and this is still a problem that has not been fully corrected by the DOD. Mm. And when it comes to whistleblower reprisal within the military services, that itself is a problem that has been existing since the Military Protection Act uh, in the 1980s. Uh, essentially, service members have second-class rights to protect themselves from retaliation to other federal government employees and to other private sector employees. And that's mind-boggling to me because these are the folks with the most important disclosures. They are the people who we want blowing the whistle whenever possible, wherever possible, about whatever kind of wrongdoing they see. But when they blow the whistle, they are retaliated against. They can be retaliated against. Human Rights Watch has a report that says something about 70% uh, of service members who blow the whistle report some type of retaliation. And they try to fight that retaliation. They try to fight their terminations, promotions, poor performance reviews, being passed over for, for a promotion. They go to the Department of Defense Inspector General, or they go to one of the service inspectors general. 
and uh, Tom Lappies, there are a lot of problems within the IG system. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest problems, or one of the root causes of this problem, is that they have to, they have an almost insurmountable burden placed upon them when they are trying to prove that they were retaliated against, that they need corrective action as justice. And the rest of the federal government, excluding the intelligence community, the whistleblower does not have to prove that they were retaliated against for a certain reason. Instead, the burden is on the government to prove that they would have taken whatever personnel action they took against the whistleblower for some other reason. But in the military, it's completely flipped around. The whistleblower, who doesn't have many resources, especially if they've been fired, has to prove against the entire United States Defense Department that they were fired in retaliation for their protected disclosure not even mentioning how little evidence they can already acquire if they are outside the DOD or wherever they work as service members. Uh, but that's one thing we've been trying to fix for you know, the past few decades. And we're finally getting a bit closer now that we have some language in the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act that can help reverse and equalize the burdens. Unfortunately, we don't believe that will survive conference. But we're hopeful. Marianne, a lot has happened since the first edition of your book came out in 2006, of course, including the 2008 financial sector meltdown and some other corporate uh, scandals, including this ongoing Boeing Supermax 8 saga. What, if anything, has changed in the 10-plus years in the way of corporate ethics and statutory compliance since, since your first edition came out? Well, I'm actually working on a different book because I'm looking at this and I think, okay, I outlined the seven steps. Every case since then has followed those seven steps. What are you not getting? It's like Michigan State, Ohio State, you know, all of them. It's the same Penn State. It's the same story. What are you not getting? So one day I was cleaning my bookshelves, and I decided to get rid of some books. And I, you know, Jane Fonda book went, the Mary Lou Henner, you know, a lot of books. And then the 1980s and 90s management books were all lined up there you know, built to last, last forever, from here to eternity, whatever they were called. And I started looking at them. And as I went down those lists of companies, I realized these are the ones that are all in trouble. <laughs> and, and, then, and then when I took a deeper look, I realized that these folks, when they wrote these books, I'm calling them the management gurus, they actually provided a path that was guaranteed to have the same kinds of results, you know. In other words, if you want, if you wanted, one of the questions I've often given my graduate students is, if you wanted to corrupt the people in an organization, what would you do? Because they've studied all these failures and of ethics, and they know. And these management gurus, without any backdrop on ethics, were offering them formulas that were almost. I mean, it's. The tentative title is Hornswoggle because I mean I think that's what they were. Everyone bought these books and was doing this stuff without the backdrop of ethics. And so if you say in a book you've got to have big, hairy, audacious goals, what do you think people are going to do in response to that? So they've set up this system where you are almost guaranteed to have these kinds of behaviors. I was reading an article the other day about the British history in India. Don't ask me why, but I was. And when they got to Delhi, there were cobras everywhere. And so they said, oh, we got to fix this problem. So they put a bounty on the cobras that if you bring in a dead cobra, we'll pay you. 
Well, it worked like a charm, except they were breeding cobras to kill and then bring in so that you set up these goals and people will get there. They might not be real. And it doesn't matter whether it's the VA. It doesn't matter with Boeing on this particular plane. The pressure was to get a plane out there that was wider body yeah. and could compete get with Airbus without a redesign. And I remember saving an article where someone says that what they're going to get is a result of what happens when you build a plane by the financial guys instead of the engineering guys. Yeah. And I, there's, their words, not mine. I'm sure there were women involved. I have to be really careful <laughs> about that. But I think what I have discovered is they might have seen the seven signs, but these were multi-million bestsellers yeah. that people, and they worship these gurus right. like gods. Right. And they everybody, and you can still hear it today. I was listening in on a corporate call the other day, and I heard every single cliche and buzzword that you could imagine from these 1980s and 1990s books. It's infiltrated it without regard to ethics. And I think that comes through in Tom's book that fundamentally, we have shifted as a society, and the data certainly indicate this, in terms of right and wrong. We don't have those lines anymore that say, no, this is fraud, and you can't do that to patients. Right. And this is dangerous, and you have to tell them that. And we have fundamentally shifted away, but we shifted to the, in this intellectual way that we have to follow these management principles. And they talk a lot about values. Right. But maybe the word integrity shows up once in a while, but not ethics. Right. So that's the new individual book. conscience. That's the other thing. That's you have to have a group, uh, you know, a mission and a value they statement. They use religious or, words of what? all things. Mm -hmm. so you want to co-opt that to make yeah. your group stronger. Yeah. Do Do any of the three of you think there's any connection between organizational size, for example? and the likelihood of pathologies of the kind that, that we've been discussing. Is, is, there, is there any data to support the idea that, you know, bigger begets more corrupt? Or well, governments, you're right <laughs> there. Enterprise right there. <laughs> you don't need any corporations. Look at what he deals with. <laughs> well, Louis Brandeis, the curse of bigness, it, it absolutely is. It's a one-to-one. -one. If you go beyond a certain size, um, you know, the direct sense of responsibility and involvement that what I am doing produces those results is lost. You have a chain of command, you have a chain of responsibility, you have a series of activities that are more and more disassociated with the ultimate goal, and you have a mission, and you can talk about your stock price instead of what you're actually doing. There are all these ways of making it a numbers game instead of a thing game. What are we doing? on the planet, what are we doing to people? And I, so I think there's no question. I mean, there are some big organizations that are not corrupt, and there are some very small organizations that are highly corrupt. But I think, as a general principle, the bigger it gets, the better, bigger the threats. Because the front line is more detached right. from those who are making the decision. Right. And it's harder for them to get the information up. There are barriers along the way. And the information gets filtered along the way as well. It's the telephone game. <laughs> you know, the front line sees this issue, but then it's yeah. it's recharacterized up until, okay, well, I don't see that as a big deal. And Pat, what are the two, I mean, the, the, the Nuremberg principle uh, that you cannot be, uh, you cannot disassociate yourself from. And then the, um, at any rate, the two principle, military principles that someone cannot 
cannot um, plead higher orders for uh, to excuse themselves from a uh, from a, an atrocity from committing an atrocity. And at the same time, the commanding officer should not be able to say, "Ooh, I was out of the loop. Boy, that's a bummer." But I didn't know anything about it. Those two things are clear in law since Nuremberg. However, those are the two arguments that always win the day. I was out of the loop. The CEO said, whew, geez, that's a shame. I was out of the loop. I had no idea that was going on. And the frontline people say, hey, gee, I was just following orders. I mean, I, you know. So again, the disassociation between the frontline and the managerial class becomes a perfect kind of shock absorber for all of these responsibilities, sense of responsibility. And that's also why it's so important in many cases for whistleblowers to actually name names when they're making disclosures and filing complaints, uh, especially in the government, especially in the intelligence community, where the institution is just so large that there are so many people that could be involved in certain decision-making processes that it's important for a whistleblower who has access to as much evidence as they may have actually name names and give more information to government investigators who can go in and interview different people and get a much clearer sense of the big picture. Well, and that brings me back to one of the things that I really wanted to kind of touch on here a little bit. Walk us through, for government employees in this circumstance, federal government employees, walk us through the difference between the level of protection that is afforded to folks outside of the national security establishment and that afforded to people inside the national security establishment. It is night and day. And day being your average federal government employee working at Health and Human Services, working at the Postal Service, working anywhere in the government that is outside the intelligence community or the defense apparatus. Essentially, those employees can make disclosures wherever they want. Uh, they can go to the media. They can go to the Congress. They can go through their chain of command. They can go to an inspector general. They can go wherever they can to, make, to be protected in making a disclosure of wrongdoing. In the intelligence community, the process is much more convoluted as we're all seeing in these past few weeks. Intelligence community employees and contractors can only go to their inspector general or the intelligence community inspector general. Uh, they can try to go to the congressional intelligence committees <coughs> through their inspectors general. But once again, they have to go through the system that they're reporting against. And, and, to, 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 and to just yeah. pause that for a moment, with respect to most of the inspectors general offices around the government, but particularly within the national security establishment, most of those folks who serve in those offices are oftentimes, this is absolutely true at CIA, are on rotation from different points within their own organization. And, and so I was always of the view that if you're working in an IG office, and again, I'll just use CIA as an example, and something comes up in the Directorate of Science and Technology, and you know you have to go back to the Directorate of Science and Technology, and you get tagged to do an audit or an investigation on your own entity, if there isn't some kind of absolute ironclad conflict of interest provision, then you're put in a position of going and auditing your home office or even participating in an audit of your home office, knowing very well in the back of your mind, wow, if I come down with like something really bad here, that's going to cause problems for me when I go back, right? So this, this is a concern that I have. Is this something that, that GAP is concerned about? Is this something that you have seen? Is this a phenomenon in essence? Certainly. I certainly share that concern. Uh, there 
are really two concerns there. Number one, with the rotationals and the joint duty assignments, uh, where exactly like Pat said, you will have people investigating their home agencies. If conflict of interest, rules and regulations and guidances <coughs> are not, number one, made more transparent, and number two, enforced inside their agencies. But that's part of a much larger problem I see, which is the fact that many of these inspectors general inside the intelligence community operate their offices around cults of personality. Uh, it is very, usually whistleblower cases have very little to do with the process, ironically in the intelligence community, which is so obsessed with the process for whistleblowers to follow. Uh, as we just saw as recently as, I believe a month ago now, uh, the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General conducted a very rare uh, investigation into the Central Intelligence Agency Inspector General. And they found that there were a number of whistleblowers within the CIA Inspector General's office that had made reports up their chain of command to Congress or to the intelligence community Inspector General, and then were reprised against by the very people entrusted with protecting intelligence community whistleblowers at the CIA. Uh, and reports like that are not uncommon whatsoever. I saw the same thing at the Defense Intelligence Agency. If you, back in, I believe, 2017, there were two senior official whistleblowers uh, who were assistant inspectors general. That's a very high-ranking position inside the watchdog <coughs> office. And they had made multiple types of disclosures against uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency inspector general. And I believe it was publicly reported that they eventually won some of their case, but still suffered a lot. So we can't really always trust all of the watchdogs. And there are some great ones out there, like the NSA Inspector General Robert Storch mm -hmm. is a great case, case in point of a Inspector General watchdog that really cares about whistleblowers and will try his best to make life easier for them. Uh, but no matter what, it's going to be hard. Would, would Storch care about NSA um, management misusing the National Security Act of 1959, which is the operating uh, legislation for the NSA, would Storch be interested in NSA as an institution misusing that to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, or criminal conduct? I can't speak to that, but I know that he, I, I certainly can't speak for him, but I know that he was the whistleblower ombudsman at the Department of Justice Inspector General before he became the NSA Inspector General, and he's really carried that kind of work through with him, his experience working with whistleblowers. So I, I believe if a whistleblower uh, was rightly concerned with some of the, with the NSA going outside their charter, then they could go to the NSA IG and I would trust that uh, Mr. Storch would conduct an independent investigation. What if the individual didn't work for NSA but was suing NSA? <laughs> we'll talk about this later. All right, that sounds um, good. You should probably talk to him. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Uh, we, are, we are gonna run short of time here. Um, uh, unfortunately, very soon. So I, I do feel an obligation. I've got one more uh, kind of observation and or question that I kind of want to pose here, and then we'll, we'll turn to current events, and then after that we'll, we'll take a few questions. So far we've talked about individual human beings, such as Alan and Alan and some of these others. Are we aware of circumstances where we've had more than one person in an organization, uh, or even outside of an organization, try to move things forward? Um, whether they succeeded or failed. In other words, have we seen group whistleblowing, if you will? Is, is that a thing? Certainly, a, I mean, a chain reaction of whistleblowing. We'd see that in the NSA 5 with, with Bill Binney and, and uh, Diane Rourke and then Tom Drake. And the way in which um, their abuse by their own inspectors general office caused such outrage 
among certain people within um, the, the inspector general, including John Crane, that he became a whistleblower. There is a knock-on effect, uh, you know, a whistleblower cascade, I call it. Um, certainly there are, uh, I think, in the current, um, um, you know, Ukraine whistleblower case, we have someone who is speaking for a lot of people. Now, to what extent they would not want to be questioned on this, to what extent they were equally shocked by what they heard and, and were just afraid to come forward is not clear, but he might well be a clearinghouse for a number of people um, who have a wide range of concerns. Um, so I think, yes, I think group, I think w that's why organizations clamp down so viciously on whistleblowers is they want to nip that stuff in the bud. I mean, they do not want anyone else going online and saying, yeah, I could be a whistleblower too. Actually, I saw something. No, boom, you want to see someone struck by lightning so that everyone else says, whew, not me. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And I think that one of the human reactions to being told that you're wrong, that something you're doing is wrong, is misconduct, is very barbaric. It's just to take a rock and smash the problem. And that's exactly what retaliators are trying to do with whistleblowers every day. But to dig in on your point about group whistleblowing, and especially with this anonymous whistleblower uh, who made disclosures regarding the Trump administration, uh, so far, what we've seen is the president trying to find who was working with this, who exact the identities of the people working with this whistleblower that, was, that were giving him information. Well, when this whistleblower made their disclosure, the intelligence community inspector general conducted a preliminary review of that disclosure. And that means they interviewed witnesses, they reviewed documents, and every single witness that the intelligence community inspector general interviewed to de eventually determine that the disclosure was credible is also, in fact, a whistleblower. They are protected from retaliation, depending on their employment status, uh, because they cooperated with an inspector general investigation. So when it comes to whether or not one whistleblower can breed more, I think when one whistleblower goes to a government investigator and that government investigator starts talking to others, lots of people become whistleblowers and it does drive this group mentality toward justice. That's exactly how we get solidarity for that one whistleblower to be protected, is by finding other people in similar situations willing to speak with government investigators. In, in the corporate arena in the last several years, particularly in the tech sector, we have seen de facto uprisings at places yeah. like Google among employees. How would you characterize that in, in terms <laughs> of, a, of a reaction essentially to uh, a management policy, a management uh, contracting decision that a yeah, lot of a lot, of, lot of tantrums in Silicon Valley. I've <laughs> noticed we have we have a great deal of that, and I characterize those differently. But I want to add something to what's been said here because <clears throat> something that I see as a trend in the corporate world is the retaliation has decreased because there are people watching. That has decreased, but what I am seeing is a much more effective strategy which is the slow walking of investigations. Mm -hmm. And certainly that happens in the government, I'm sure. But um, what they do is there's you know, very sincere compliance officers, and, and many of them are, but they are powerless to move things along. Right. And what happens is that's the message. So that it, it, nobody's getting fired, but at the same time, it goes on for so long and no action is taken, and whoever raised the issue, whether anonymously or otherwise, sees that nothing is done, yeah. they have that choice. Um, in terms of the group whistleblowing, uh, it may come after the fact. 
but I think that's a difficult path for employees to organize. They mm -hmm. don't seem to have much trouble in Silicon Valley, but I'll address that in a different way. That's very much a political kind of thing. I had a student once who came back after being hired by a defense contractor and he was just really upset and he said, their ethics are awful. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, they make things that they use in wars. And I said, well, yes, that, that is their line of work. <laughs> I said, you know, I think you may have to find a different line of work. I don't think you're going to be a whistleblower here. And so I look at the companies there in Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of disagreement on everything from diversity. Right. And, and, you know, you look at this poor overstock company and selling mattresses so kids have a bed at the borders, and they're protesting over that, putting the company near bankruptcy. I mean, I look at that and I say... You know, we can't always just boycott because we disagree politically. I think that does not do justice to the people I work with and people like Ellen who have legitimately raised harms to individuals. Yeah. I think that not that there isn't harm that doesn't come from political, type, social types of decisions, right. but I think what we're looking for here is those people who are saying this has to stop. Yeah. It is illegal. People are being harmed. And we can all agree on that once right. we know about it. Right. But on those issues, we're never going to all agree yeah. on those. Those are the philosophical, like would you throw someone under the train to save 10 lives? I've never solved that one. Right. You know, I've, right. I, and I don't know that it's solvable. Yeah. But I see that a little bit differently, and I, I think there probably are some more thoughtful ways for management to handle that. So I, I would be remiss if I did not actually bring up the most famous example of group whistleblowing in American history. And I hope you don't mind because I'm going to plug another great book. So if you buy Tom's, um, you also have to buy this one. This is The Burglary by former Washington Post reporter Betty Medsker, also the subject of the 1970, the documentary 1971. An extraordinary group of literally average Americans in Philadelphia was really upset about, and many of them were anti-war activists, this is in the 1970s, were very upset about uh, what was happening to the country and especially in Vietnam. And they became convinced that they were under FBI surveillance and they were right in a big way. And what these folks decided to do was actually break into an FBI office. In this case, not the main one in Philadelphia, but what was known as a resident agency back in the day uh, in a little town called uh, Media, Pennsylvania. And so on March 8th, 1971, uh, during the famous Fraser Ali fight at Madison Square Garden, when they knew everybody would be distracted, they executed a, a well, well-designed plan to break into that office, and they took every single document in the office. And this ultimately is how we found out about what became known as, or what is known as, the COINTEL uh, program that was designed to go after African Americans, students, women's groups, just name it. There was an entire list, essentially. Uh, and it was actually Carl Stern, uh, then a reporter with NBC News, who, who picked out the document that actually used the phrase COINTEL Pro. He filed a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Uh, initially, they, they told him to go pound salt. Um, he and NBC News did not take no for an answer. Uh, and ultimately, they got the first 50,000 pages on the COINTEL program out there. And all of this is what ultimately leads to the creation of the church committee and so many things that kind of flow from it after that. Uh, so this was literally a form of outside whistleblowing. It's unprecedented in American history. They called themselves, and I just love this, 
the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. There are those of us who believe that we need a new Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, but we'll get, that to the, get to that another time. All right. I want to make sure that we do leave time for questions, but I would absolutely be remiss if I did not spend at least a few minutes dealing with the whistleblower. Um, I will just, for sake of time, just kind of give the, the quick and dirty here in, in way of a, a little bit of background. At this point in time, we don't know, we don't have it confirmed where exactly in the government this person works. We believe that it is in the intelligence community because it was the intelligence community inspector general who got the complaint. The New York Times ran a story, I believe it was either late last week or early this week, um, basically claiming on the, on the basis of three anonymous sources that the person is a CIA analyst. There is no independent confirmation of that at this point in time, but I, I would say that it's certainly plausible. Simply stated, the individual has alleged that the President of the United States has engaged in what amounts to a de facto conspiracy to work with foreign governments to get information, dirt if you will, uh, on some of his domestic opponents, in this case, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. And a whole series of allegations and there's just an enormous amount of swirl and upset that kind of surrounds this whole thing. And you're, you're hearing folks um, who are supporters of, of the president who are basically saying, this is hearsay, this is hearsay, this is hearsay, which is true insofar as what the individual has reported uh, for the most part in that nine-page memo. But my question for Irv is, what does the law say about this? Uh, do you have to have first-person direct evidence in order to report wrongdoing in a federal intelligence community context? No. You do okay. not. Okay. And that, that is a huge misconception. I believe I had to talk with, I think, seven different fact checkers on Monday. That's how I spent a good hour and a half, two hours, three hours, uh, all saying the same thing. No. Uh, an intelligence community employee does not have to have first-hand or second-hand or even third-hand information to become a whistleblower. They just have to have a reasonable belief that they are witnessing some type of wrongdoing, some specific wrongdoing. And what that means is that any of us, any of their peers, if they were a reasonable person, would see or hear the things that this whistleblower saw or heard and would also conclude that it does indeed reference some type of wrongdoing. It's a really low standard. And the fact is that the intelligence community <laughs> inspector general actually took that disclosure and they didn't just give it a once over and give it a check mark and send it on to the DNI and cause an impeachment inquiry. Uh, they conducted their own 14-day preliminary review where, like I said, they talked to witnesses. They reviewed documents. They found that this disclosure was credible. And that doesn't require first-hand information, but it's pretty darn close. They have to do a good job because all that matters for inspectors general are their credibility. Once you lose your credibility as an inspector general, you have virtually nothing. Yeah. And that's why this is so important, and that's why it, this is a huge misconception. If we had a type of standard where only first-hand information would protect whistleblowers and sources, we would have to cancel roughly 95% of all federal law enforcement investigations right now. We could not have an FBI, we could not have local police investigating any of the tips they receive. You have to be pretty lucky to be an eyewitness to the crime you're trying to investigate. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, a number of... But of, if, if yeah, I could ahead, just say, in, in the corporate world, 99.9% .9 of them are first-hand witnesses mm -hmm. to that. I, I think that's an important distinction. And I also think it's important to understand that the form was changed. 
the, the form that was filed with the inspector general from the first hand, it was eliminated. I know what the statute says. But the reason I make that point, it is a critical one, because there ain't nothing worse than a whistleblower who's wrong. Yeah. You know, there is nothing worse than a whistleblower for them, for the company, yeah. for everyone, and I've seen it. And so I, I believe that in the corporate world, that standard, the people who are coming forward actually have documents. Right. The people who are coming forward are not just saying, well, somebody told me this. And I think if you talk to those five people and having gone into companies after you have this kind of issue, you'll get every story from this right. side to that side when you rely on that kind of thing. The ones that have enjoyed the most success, the ones where they eventually break through are those where they do have first. And it's not just reporting what someone said on a phone call or in a meeting. Right. They have the documentation. Right. And that may be because the government has more protections for whistleblowers and whatnot. I, I don't know. There are some statutes for, for corporate, but they're not as protective as we think. I would think that in this case, it's very, very problematic to produce documents when they're, when they're classified. I, un right. I, under yeah. I understand yeah. that, but there is a risk. And in this particular case, and I may be the only token Trump supporter on this panel. I understand that. And I'll, I'll live with it. I've been the token woman for four decades in many situations. So... I understand that, but in this case, it is so serious. You're talking about the presidency of the United States, and I'm not sure that we are not compromising something far greater, and I think that's the corporate standard because, okay, if you're gonna bring down a company, let's make sure that it's there. Yeah. If you wanna bring down a president, let's make sure that we have the evidence, and that's why, that firsthand, it's why it's a standard for trials and those kinds of things. So I... By the IG vetted this before and, and, and pronounced it... Well, let me... Well, he did talk about political bias. There was a discussion of yet, political bias. He still bias. did find the complaint credible, faith. even... Well, yeah, but he did say the political bias. bias. But let me, and I think that's important. Let, let, me, let, me, let me jump in here because, you know, I, I personally have written some pieces scaldingly critical of the current chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, Adam Schiff, really and, and I, and I, yeah, and you would agree with it. It's scalding, <laughs> and and I stand by that because um, on November the first of 2018, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. All of this, what I'm about to tell you, literally just was not picked up by almost any media at all uh, last year. On November the first of last year, and you can go to Chuck Grassley's website and find this. He put out a press release and two documents that he managed to get out of the, the intelligence community inspector general after a four-year battle that showed that my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, had been deliberately and consciously monitoring whistleblower communications, not just with the ICIG, but with, but with members of Congress and their staffs itself. I will tell you that that is exactly the kind of scandal that led to the creation of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees over 40 years ago in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the problem and the concern that I have with Mr. Schiff um, and, and where I see Democrats going with this is that Adam Schiff has never been interested in whistleblower issues until this particular episode surfaced. Because if you go to Mr. Schiff's website, if you go to the committee website, with respect to what Senator Grassley has revealed, and we're talking about actual documents that you can download, Adam Schiff has said not one word publicly, not one tweet, not one press release, nothing. Now, 
it would, it would be fair to say that, you know, on, on most issues, I don't agree with this president. <laughs> <laughs> but I also believe that at the end of the day, like anybody else, he is entitled to get a fair hearing. Now, this is not a typical trial. That's what makes this very, very different. When we, when we talk about standards of evidence and all the rest of that, in an impeachment circumstance, uh, the standard is so-called high crimes and misdemeanors, and, and that can be uh, construed rather broadly. So I think I do share your concern, Marianne, about the process and whether or not the process will be as it should be. I think given the extremely high profile attack dog position that Mr. Schiff has taken, that Speaker Pelosi would be well advised to actually bring a resolution to the House floor that would create a separate independent committee. And that's the process. Yeah, that it, is the process. And, and, and I worry about what's being lost. This one, I don't know the outcome. Yeah. And I don't know the evidence. And I'm willing to say that, unlike many people who are convinced they know what happened. Right. I don't. Right. I clearly do not. Right. But I worry that we have set up a standard for impeachment that and we will rue that day because I understand historically what that required. I understand that it is largely political. I understand when there's a trial, they don't even read that you have to base it on the evidence in the Senate. That's not part of it. I understand all of that. But this is something that will, in effect, reverse the vote of 2016. Well, that, that is the reason why... It needs the process. It, 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 it will, in my judgment at least, you know, require a very high evidentiary standard. Now, to go to the flip side of this, this nine-page memo was written by someone who, in my estimation, is an extremely careful and meticulous individual. The level of detail in this memo itself, even without the classified attachments, is rather remarkable. And so from an investigative standpoint, Irv McCullough, this should be pretty much a no-brainer for anybody who's an objective investigator to go talk to this person, ask them to provide the names of the other individuals who allegedly shared this information. And then from a, from a purely procedural standpoint, shouldn't they really be focused on trying to get all the documents they can get their hands on at this point before they ever actually depose anybody? It seems to me what I'm seeing are de depositions being scheduled. I see you, mm -hmm. see you nodding yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Depositions being scheduled before any kind of document delivery has, has taken place. Your thoughts? Well, I, first, because we are so, so talk, talking so heavily about the whistleblower, I do want to give a disclosure that my uh, father is on the legal team of the whistleblower. Uh, he is one of three attorneys representing the whistleblower, and I have a firewall between him, so I don't talk to him about the case. He doesn't talk to me about the case. I'll talk to you about how well firewalls work in corporations. <laughs> <laughs> I have well, some stories on that one. I'll tell my father about that. I'd love to know more about the case, but he's privileged <laughs> out for telling me. Uh, but... That's absolutely right, Pat, is that any investigator would look at this disclosure and see that it warrants further review, at least. And that's exactly what the Intelligence Community Inspector General did, who is, by the way, a Trump appointee confirmed by a Republican Senate. When he got this disclosure, he conducted his preliminary review, and that's where they talked to the other witnesses referenced in the disclosure. That's where they reviewed different documents referenced in the disclosure. And they found that this disclosure was credible. Now, let me just say something really quick. That's a pretty high bar. I have seen so many whistleblowers lose inside the intelligence community at that level. It is almost rare, it is almost anomalous for an inspector general inside the intelligence community to find a whistleblower's disclosure as credible. And that's exactly what happened here. Could I ask this question? Mm -hmm. 
Do you think there's any of the diagnosis bias that I mentioned earlier in our evaluation of this situation? In other words, what we talked about at the beginning, which is there's a psychology that you can look at a situation and you can say, oh, this is, this is horrifying, whereas another person looks at it and says, well, I'm not really seeing it. But, I mean, the White House has corroborated a number of the uh, alleged wrongdoings. No, I'm not talking about the in, evidence. Yeah. I'm talking about is it possible that in this situation and emotions run really high during this period of our political history, is it possible that those involved might have some diagnosis bias. I'd say on right, both sides. I, I'd say on both sides. It's absolutely yes. possible. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's why I would not be conducting the investigation, to be honest, yeah. because yeah. I would certainly be conflicted out, because yeah. I would certainly have a lot of different biases. Yeah. But that's why there needs to be as much information given to the Congress and the investigators as possible. Yeah. And that's why the State Department should comply and, with the Congress's demands. And we have lost the ability to just look at an issue and say, regardless of how we feel, how does Jim Comey, who was fired as FBI director, end up teaching ethics in law school? I'm not understanding that. How does I am John not you understanding get a job that at all. And I on, think we have to do that. On that very, very uh, quotable one-liner, uh, <laughs> I want to I call it there. Um, I want to go ahead and have some questions here. We are going to run a little bit over. I'm OK with that. I think, uh, Tom, you'll be OK with that. Um, I know you've got a plane to catch. Right. But we'll, so we'll, I may walk out, but it won't be out of anger. Okay, very good. Very good. Glad Slam to Slam the door behind you. <laughs> As I said at the outset, um, please wait for, the, uh, for me to call upon you, wait for the microphone to get to you, uh, and then please give us your name and your affiliation if you can. The gentleman back up here uh, in the white polo, if you stand, thank you. Uh, I came to this country, as you can hear, and one of the things I learned was that the unions were very, very corrupt. Uh, I have been members of some, but I've not witnessed anything. There must be whistleblowers in unions that for some reason you decided not to talk about. It's not uh, in the book. I, I have it right here. Uh, the other thing is... No, it's not. It's uh, not in the, the unions. Uh, seem to be allowed, I've been told, I'm not a lawyer, to uh, be exempt from normal behavior as far as retaliation, as far as uh, uh, being, uh, what do you call it, aggressive towards members, break their legs or noses or what have you. Uh, you didn't mention it. Is that because there are no whistleblowers among the unions? No, no, that's, that's how, in fact, one of the things that was interesting about Tom's book is that um, I, I think there's a little bias there. Um, I mean, I'm not wild about the behaviors of corporations, and I understand that, but I understand the role they play. You know, there are whistleblowers in every organization. And I mean, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, what was going on there was ridiculous, and it went on for decades. And that's something that never came to the surface. If you look at the unions now, look at what's happening. Um, up there with the auto workers. Some have said the strike was, was supposed to be a distraction from all of the criminal charges that are coming against the union leaders. If you want to have a study in corruption, that's where we should go because there, you know, and a lot of the reforms have come because whistleblowers have come out and said, I can't stand it anymore. I can't be a part of this. So there are no angels. 
in an organization, there are no angelic organizations. There are humans running. And as long as humans run organizations, there will be problems with corruption, with issues, with misconduct, because we are fallible as human beings. So it is a study in and of <clears throat> itself. I, I completely agree. Um, my book was originally 1,000 pages. And you can thank my editor for reducing significantly the number of whistleblowers that you'll be subjected to in the reading of 600 pages. Um, I had a whole chapter on failed whistleblowers. I had a whole chapter on dubious whistleblowers, whistleblowers with mixed, um, um, with mixed motives, uh, with questionable motives, um, perhaps bad facts. I think all of these things are very important. I think it's also very important not to try to do, you know, to, to, to elevate the whistleblower to the hero or the demon. These, just as Marianne said, organizations of every kind have potential for drifting to the dark side and individuals within them who may call that out. Individuals um, do whistleblowing for all kinds of reasons. And there may well be someone who has excellent facts but a real animus against their organization and a real axe to grind against their boss that actually decides to blow the whistle because they hate that person and they're going to get them. Now, the real point here is, do they have good facts or not? That's the most important thing. Drifting towards the, the mentality of the whistleblower, their motivations, that's a distraction from the misconduct that they're reporting. If they're wrong, they will hear about it. If they're right, we only care about the facts. I will, I will tell you that's that. My position on the whole impeachment thing, right there. <laughs> there we just go. care about the facts. That's we the, do just care about the facts. I, we do just care about the facts. I will tell you 100%. that I, I appreciate your question. You have given me an idea for yet another event. So, <laughs> so thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Yes, ma'am, right down here. I'm Janice Walt Grenadier. I live in Virginia, and we are the deep state. If you look at James Comey and um, how he got away with it, in 2014, the FBI did a special phone number and a special email address for any corruption in Virginia. So I, I have to ask, do, do you have a question for the panel? Because we're, we're already over. What whistleblowers who are not government employees have no recourse. Where can a whistleblower who is not a government employee find someone to help them? Because I need help. The judges in our state are about the most corrupt you will ever find, and it's a systematic from the top down okay. in Virginia. So fundamentally, if someone is not part of an organization. Right. Mm -hmm. An what, external whistleblower. What? External whistleblower, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can, if you're dealing with a corporation, you can, you, can approach, you can approach it as a false claims act or other, I mean, if they are defrauding the government. The judges, it's the judges. The judges, the judges themselves, okay. You gotta go to your congressman, right? Yeah, you could go to your member of Congress. Federal or state uh, judges? Actually, state and federal. Both. Because your, federal, your state judges become federal judges. So the collusion of the old boys network is really through to Virginia. And we have all the big players, Mueller, everybody, that was in so, with all the corruption against Trump. So we will. I'm a Trumper also. So we'll. <laughs> 
so we'll, another one in the room. We'll, we'll see if we'll see if we can try to uh, come up with some additional ideas as as we go but forward. But there are I there, appreciate that. there are particular organizations. I know we have one in Arizona because we have to revote judges into office every year, and so we have organizations that accept complaints, and then those are made public. But there are other organizations that actually discipline judges, but I don't know how corrupt Virginia is, and I don't want to make an assumption about that, because reporting it to them may not be off. And then as a last resort, as I say to my students, go public. If you feel that the danger is high, go public. Once you've tried every single avenue, that then there are commissions that are available. I don't know about Virginia. I only know about our state. So we have uh, other questions over here. Yes, ma'am, over here in the black. Hi, I'm Bridget Sercheck. I'm the Chief of Public Affairs at Voice of America, but I also used to be the Chief of Public Affairs at the DOD Inspector General. So one quick thing you had mentioned about rotations, I think that's primarily at smaller IGs. At the cabinet level, with the 1,600 folks at the DOD IG, the only folks who ever went back to the department were those in uniform. So I just wanted to clarify that. When you come to an IG, you're pretty much there for your career. If you want to go to other IGs or apply to another position elsewhere in the government, that's certainly possible. But no one at the DOD IG is on a rotation. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, we I'll, have... I'll mention the examples that I've seen uh, have also happened inside the intelligence community. So it is at smaller shops, like at NRO IG, at NGA IG. That's where you have the rotationals, where you have a DOE IG going to NRO for a day, you know, for a year on a JDA. And then they'll be investigating someone at NROIG or doing a peer review. That, that's the kind of stuff I've seen. But at DODIG, you're right. It's a huge job. These are monstrous organizations. OK, gotcha. All right. Thanks to our panel. Book signing coming up next. <laughs>